Hi, and welcome to Conduct Her, where we are two sisters on a mission to amplify female voices on the podium. Join us as we interview leaders in the field of choral music, share resources, and build a community for current and future teacher conductors, all while exploring the gender divide. I'm Kira Starr. And I'm McKenna Stenson. And we are Conduct Her. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Conduct Her. We are so excited today to have Dr. Carrie Adams on with us. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Adams. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Well, I have known Dr. Carrie Adams um, from right before she was officially a doctor, um, while she was finishing up her time at the University of North Texas. Um, And we just want to let you guys know about her and share a bit of her professional background. Uh, So Dr. Carrie Adams is Assistant Professor of Choral Music Education at Florida State University and conducts the FSU treble chorus, Lavana, which was formerly known as the Women's Glee Club, for those of you who are FSU alum. Prior to her appointment at FSU, Adams completed her PhD in music education at the University of North Texas. Go Mean Green. (laughs) She taught middle school choir and general music at Knob Noster, Missouri, where she was named Teacher of the Year in 2014. She is a passionate educator, conductor, clinician, and researcher. Her research interests include incremental theories of intelligence and teacher identity development. And her work has been published... Um, in Music Educators Journal update. Oh, also applications of research in music education, International Journal of Research in Choral Singing, and Journal of Research in Music Education. I am sorry if you can hear my cat in the background. There is a lot happening there. (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Adams. (laughs) Thank you so much. So to kick off our podcast, um, we have a couple of questions that we ask every guest. Um, and our first one for you today is going to come from Kira. All right. So question number one, would you just tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how you came to choral music? Sure. So I came to choral music through a long series of accidents, not, not intentionally at all. Um, I was always very drawn to music. I started taking piano lessons when I was very young and loved singing and playing instruments and learning instruments. Um, But when it came time to select my middle school and high school music experiences, I was not really interested in choir. I felt like I already knew how to sing and I wanted to learn some new instruments instead. So I chose the violin and I played in orchestra. I played in the band. I decided to pick up flute about halfway through high school and I joined the band, but I never sang in a choral ensemble at all. Um, I was planning on going to college for violin performance, maybe string music ed, and I had some uh, issues with severe tendonitis and some injuries in my wrists that prohibited me from continuing on the violin. And so I decided that I knew I wanted to be a teacher still. Like I had known I had wanted to be a teacher for as long as I can remember. And so I decided to pick a program that had a really strong education department. And I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to teach, but I knew I wanted to get a degree in education. 
While I was there, I decided that I would do a minor in music. And because I had chosen a university for the education program and not the music program, it was a fairly weak music program. And the only ensemble they had were, were choirs. There were no instrumental ensembles at all. And so I had to sing in a choir. And so that was my first time singing in a, a choral setting at all. So that's kind of how I ended up in the door of the choir world. And then over the course of the time that I was there, I of course ended up falling in love with it, obviously changed my major, decided that I wanted to be a a choir teacher. And um, then here I am today. So it's a kind of an unconventional route to choral music, but that's how I got there. That is amazing. That must've been incredibly difficult to have that dream of becoming a string teacher and then have an injury prohibit you. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I had known that I was a teacher forever. That was the the main core part of my identity. And as I went through school, I always I think back, I always said that I wanted to teach whatever my favorite thing was at that time. So when I was in fourth grade, I wanted to be a fourth grade teacher. When I was in sixth grade, I wanted to be a sixth grade teacher. Um, And then when I got to high school, I fell in love with English language arts. And I said, that's what I wanted to do. Um, But then the last few years of high school, orchestra was my my happy place. That was where I I found the most joy and felt the most connection. Um, I played in the orchestra at high school. I played in the the university symphony orchestra that was in our town. Um, I was concert master. I, I, I loved being in the orchestra. I took a lot of private lessons. I went to the Missouri Fine Arts Academy as a violinist. Um, and so having that part of my, of my identity be severed was really challenging, but I had that teacher part that I could still hold on to. And I knew no matter what, in the end, I was still going to be a teacher. And I knew that I would be able to play violin again, you know, for fun. It just wasn't going to be something that I could pursue professionally. And so it was, it was absolutely a challenging and, and difficult time to figure out who am I and how am I going to continue to relate to music, which is such an important part of my life? What's that going to look like moving forward? And so I think that probably was part of why my choral experiences spoke to me so profoundly because I had this portion of me that was no longer there. And so finding a way to connect in choir was really interesting. And also having an instrumental background going into a choral setting, there's so many differences. I remember so distinctly the very first choir concert that I did. And we were standing in the hallway before the concert started and everyone was talking to each other. And I was like, what is happening? This is not what you do before a concert. (laughs) You sit in your seat and you practice and you warm up and you don't talk to other people. What is this strange thing that's happening? And so, you know, I feel like when I talk to people about the choral experience, the thing that they always say first is that aspect of community and connection. And that was, you know, those things existed in orchestra and in band, but it's just a whole different thing in the choral world. Um, And that part of me that was the teacher part really valued that idea of community and relationship building. And so seeing how that worked so effortlessly in the choral setting, I think was probably one of the many reasons that I ended up coming over to the choral side. I feel like a two-part podcast already starting. (laughs) I'm like, there's so much wealth of knowledge here. This cannot be contained in 45 minutes. Um, Well, that was beautiful. And I so appreciate knowing more about that. I I never knew that part of you. And I think um, as someone who came from 
Kira and I both have instrumental parents um, and we're very active in instrumental ensembles. Um, I was in the marching band and a drum major and my main choral experiences didn't really come actually until grad school in some capacity. And so I think we all really value the community aspect that is just a little bit different. So you kind of talked a little bit about some events that were transformative for you um, is there another event uh, that was inspirational for you that really cemented music, choir specifically, is just what I have to do? I can't see myself doing anything else. There is uh, one thing that really sticks out in my mind from my undergrad experience. Um, after I had after I had switched my major um, and started to take on more leadership roles in the choir that I sang in. I started to run sectionals and my director would ask me to do warmups occasionally. And there was one day where he had a department meeting and he was going to have to miss the first 20 minutes of rehearsal. And I had done warmups before, but that was the first day that he was said, you know, could you go ahead and do warmups and then maybe run a little bit of the rehearsal as well. And, uh, we had, a. Uh, our, the music department was in a very old building on campus. It was built in the 1870s. And the the hall that we performed in, we called Old Chapel Hall. And it was this big, beautiful auditorium where it was everything was wood, floors, walls, ceiling. Um, and the acoustics in there were just stunning. Like it almost felt like you were singing in a cathedral. And I will always remember the piece, although the further I get into the choral world, the more embarrassed I am to admit it. It was Sleep by Eric Whitaker. <laughs> it's a gorgeous piece. Um, and, you know, I'd never had experienced choral music, really. And even in that ensemble, it was a very small religious school. Most of the stuff we sang were hymn tunes, occasionally some spirituals, and then maybe a Renee Clausen every once in a while. Um, and so it was it was one of the few and first real high quality choral pieces that I had experienced. And I was in that hall that day conducting it. And I don't know why, but I had never taken conducting lessons before. I had never done any conducting, but I just started to move as I felt I should with the music. And as a violinist, we, we move <laughs> expressively with the music. And so I thought, I don't really know how to conduct, but I'm just going to move like a violinist. And as I did, the sound from the choir started to change. And I just remember it being such an amazing phenomenon to me that without saying anything, without giving any verbal instructions, just by moving my body in a different way, that I could connect with the soul and the vocal mechanism of these other people, and we could create something together as a community. And again, coming from an orchestral background but that feels in a lot of ways more individualistic. Um, that idea that we're all really connected in this moment and without verbalizing any sort of communication, we're enacting change and making music together was really, really powerful. Um, and so that, that stands out as a moment that really solidified for me that this was something that was magical that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm, that's such a great answer. <laughs> I think we've all, you know, had at least one of those moments in our lives where we've been in front of an ensemble and yeah, waving our arms around and been like, wow, this is so cool. And I 
personally am having an impact on this group of people and like how powerful is that? So yeah, definitely relatable. And one of the, one of the best things about our job, I think. Um, beautiful. Okay. So I think um, before we go to the next question, just, I would not be embarrassed about sleep by Eric Whitaker being a linchpin moment because for so many of our students, it is that piece or a piece like that piece that is the gateway drug to becoming a choral music educator. So totally. I remember singing it at ACDA Southern, like in the honor choir. (laughs) And I was like, this is the best moment of my life. So yes, and that's so important to remember too, as educators and as directors when we're programming things, because there are pieces like that that we start to think, oh, do we really need to do that again? Like it's so, it seems starts to seem to us to be overdone, and and but for our students, it's the first time that they're experiencing that every time, and so it's you know that's that's absolutely true. Thank you. I take it back. I'm not embarrassed, not at all. But I know, like in academia, there's such judgment sometimes. I'm like, uh uh-uh, sit down, sit down, friends. We love the honesty here. So you know what? No embarrassing moments exist. But yes, that that is fantastic and such a great piece. And we love that you're, yeah, love that reflection too of like now as an educator, it's our job to put ourselves back in the student perspective and say, what do they need? Not what do I need? And maybe I have done that piece before, but they haven't. And how could I make this new and exciting for them? So love that. Um, Our last question for you in terms of like the opening three that you've had access to is who and or what was helpful and influential in your journey to this point? This is another one that's really hard for me to answer concisely because there's just so many people along the way. And I think part of that is because I have never been the kind of person to sit down and have a five-year plan and plan stuff out step-by-step. I just kind of see what happens. And it's worked okay. We are not those people, Dr. Adams. So I, (laughs) that is revolutionary. And I'm trying to have more of that in my own life personally. So hats off to you. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I, I, it's, there have been a lot of times in my life where I've realized that it doesn't like, it doesn't matter what you plan, that things are going to change. Like I remember so distinctly, this is a little bit of a tangent. I apologize, but, um, my husband was uh, active duty before we met. And then he was in the reserves the first eight years that we were married. And, um, I remember they said that his unit was going to deploy for, uh, nine months and, it was about six months away that the deployment was going to happen. And I spent so much time worrying about what is this going to look like? What are we going to do? Six months came, they pushed the deployment back. And I spent another six months thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? And like trying to make plans. And then they pushed it back again. And then by that point, it happened a month after he separated. So it never even happened. And so, you know, I've had so many things like that in my life where I realized that it really doesn't do much good to plan. (laughs) So anyway, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. So, um, so because of that, I've had a lot of people who have served kind of like, you know, those, the bumpers when you go bowling, I feel like I've had a lot of people like that who have just kind of guided me back onto the path of choral music ed over the years. And the first one for me was Alan Zabriskie, who's at Texas Tech now. And he was at the University of Central Missouri when I did my master's um, there. And I, I taught my first year And I said, this is terrible. I made a huge mistake. I'm never going back in the classroom. I quit my job and I went to school to do a vocal performance degree. 
And again, as part of that degree, I was required to take one semester of instrumental conducting and one semester of choral conducting. And in that one semester of choral conducting with Dr. Zabriskie, he said, this is what you need to be doing. Like, this is your thing. You are, you're a teacher. Your conducting gesture is wonderful. Like, this is what you need to be doing. And pulled me over. And so I switched from vocal performance to choral conducting. And, um, and because of that, because of him, I had came into the program saying, I'm never going to teach again. And because of him, when I graduated, I got a job teaching middle school and, and fell in love with that. And then when I decided that I wanted to be a teacher educator, he was the one that I went to and said, I'm thinking about getting a doctorate. Is this ridiculous? And he was like, no, this is great. This is something you can do. And I said, I'm thinking about applying at UNT, but I know there's no way I'm going to get in. And he said, no, I think you should apply. You know, So he was that person for me um, who really guided me. And then once I got to UNT, then I had Jessica Napolis, who I saw for the first time a woman doing what I wanted to do. I saw a woman who was teaching music education courses and who was also still conducting an ensemble and who was active in both of those worlds, who was presenting to practitioners and researching and getting research published and doing all state gigs. And, and so I saw someone doing those things and she was so willing to just take me under her wing and say, these are the things that you need to do. And this is how you navigate this relationship. And this is how you navigate these situations. Um, and so she was a hugely influential. And then my last year in the program, Christina McMullen came to UNT, who completely changed my life when it comes to the art of programming and really reinvigorated that side of me um, to the point where now I see my primary artistic expression as the work that I do programming music for my ensemble. Um, and so those three, I think, stick out to me as really the most influential along that path from, from my first year of teaching to now. So I just want to um, touch back on one thing you said, that it took until your doctorate to see someone like you doing the thing that you want to do, which is a long time to wait. It's a long time to wait to see that. So I think that's just important to reiterate. And, um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have some of those mentors that you just spoke to. Um, and, and you're like reading into the questions Kira and I planned <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> for yes. the next part of the interview. So I'm like, <laughs> she's, she's so on it. <laughs> oh, she's amazing. Um, uh, something that resonated with me that you just said was that first year of your teaching, just feeling like a, a failure, which I'm sure you were not because you are amazing. Um, but I, I remember walking into the classroom, I graduated cause I did double degrees. So I finished in four and a half years and I got a substitute job that literally started on the Monday after my student teaching ended on a Friday. <laughs> and so I, drove back to Virginia, moved in with my parents, living the dream, and um, started teaching middle and high school choir the next day. And I just remember there is such a huge gap in learning between your undergraduate degree and actually teaching. And I think for me, I felt that the most in my conducting, specifically being in front of an ensemble, and I knew how to teach it. You know, I felt comfortable with solfege and warm-ups. And, you know, I understood, you know, creating segments and the amount of time you should spend on pieces. But 
when it came to actually moving my arms, I felt very self-conscious. And some of those things came more naturally than others, like classroom management. And that depends on the group of kids you have and their trust in you. And there's so many variables. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that moment of being in front of a group of, of children and you are in charge and feeling like, this is terrifying. <laughs> um, so just know like that's a really relatable feeling. And I think the imposter syndrome is real. And I think we probably all still feel that sometimes, but I, I really resonated with that moment from graduating your undergraduate degree and then being in the classroom. And it's, it's tough. And I think that first year can be really, really challenging for a lot of people. And you're not the first person that we've heard that from. So <laughs> you are not alone. <laughs> and I'm so thankful for it now because when I talk to my undergraduates who, when they're in their first year of teaching and they're coming to me and saying like, something is wrong with me because this isn't working. I can literally say to them, I quit. I quit after my first year and said I was never going back. And now I'm here. Like it, this is totally normal and it's going to be okay. And I also feel like I have uh, an ability to help them figure out how much of it is I'm a first year teacher how much of it is this is not a fit. And a lot of them, I think, are so afraid to quit their job after one year because they hear from a lot of people, well, if you quit after one year, you're never going to get another job. And um, so I'm I'm able to kind of help talk them through that and figure out for most, for 90% of them, it's just your first year and it's going to be fine. But there are some that it's not a good fit. The administration's not supportive. The school community is not a good fit for you where you are in this stage in your life. And that's important information too, to know when to give up. Cause I so remember, I remember going to our state conference my first year and you know, there was a pre-conference that was for first year teachers. And all of the conversations were like, this is totally normal. It's just how your first year is. And the situation I was in was extreme at, at the administrative, so like every teacher in that building was saying, this is not you, this is the administration. To the point that the year after I quit, every administrator in the entire district was fired and replaced. It was an extreme cir circumstance. And so, but when I was in that and I was talking to people who were saying, oh, this is normal, it's just your first year. Then in my mind, I was like, well, if this is what normal is, then I absolutely don't want to do this anymore. And so I think it's important to have those conversations with early career teachers that some of that is, here's the stuff that's normal. Here's the stuff that's not. So they can know when it's time to leave and move on to something else. Wow. And that's I think so well said. <laughs> there's so much truth in um, that, that fear too of, okay, I finally got this job. I've been dreaming of this. I've been working towards this goal. Um, and it's, we have a lot of parallels in our first year of teaching uh, Dr. Adams. And so when I finished my first year the people in the building were saying, McKenna, you need to leave. You need to go. Um, and my family and my friends and my mentors were saying, well, are you sure? Because it's really hard to get another job, especially when you only have one year of experience on your resume. Um, and I'm really grateful that I went with my gut um, and had a really supportive. I was lucky to be in a situation where I told my spouse, um, my fiance at the time, I was like, well, maybe I'll be a personal trainer. Maybe I'll go back and become like a dietitian, or I'll be in the health and wellness industry. That's helping people, right? Um, and the night before I got married, I actually had a job interview, um, a phone interview. And I came back from my honeymoon and started a new job a week later. 
Um, and then my third year of teaching, I started at another school. So that was three schools in three years. And it was the right thing for me. Um, and I think just being authentic to who you are um, and knowing that your gut is normally right uh, and to trust yourself and your instincts. Um, but it was really hard and it felt a lot of pressure um, from the community uh, just to to do the right thing. So this is a great segue too. I think one thing that continues to come back to me is like that is very generational, this concept of you just have to grin and bear it and get through it. But I think more and more, especially in our field, like we aren't compensated very well. We do this because we love it. So if there are these elements that are beyond our control that are not normal and you know that you are valued (laughs) and should be valued at a higher level, you can leave. It is okay. It is okay to do what's right for you. Um, So that kind of leads us into our next question for you, which is, can you talk about timing in terms of when you chose to pursue your master's, which you you did a little bit touch on that, um, and your doctoral degree? And why did you choose to move from teaching middle school and general music into higher education? Yeah, so the timing of my master's was a survival thing. <laughs> I and and as I said earlier, I did not go into my master's thinking I would ever teach again. I don't have a master's in music ed. It the focus was first vocal performance and then conducting. Um, but then once I got back into the classroom, I had a supportive administration. I had a community where I fit better. I um I had a little better grasp of what to do. Remember, I said I chose my undergrad institute because it had a strong education program, but it did not have a strong music program at all. So I still, at this point in my life, I me think to make sure this is correct, I have never taken a choral methods course still. So I, I, so I went in that first year and I had no idea what I was doing at all. And then my master's, I didn't get to take a choral methods course, but I did at least get to think more deeply about teaching and pedagogy and, and watch some other people teaching and and conducting and things like that. So I, I felt more ready that second time around. Um, so I really just fell in love with the program and with the students who were in that community. It was a military community, uh, which was really close to my heart. Um, about my third year at that program, I still had a, I was the next town over from where I did my master's and I still had a really strong relationship with that university and with the faculty who were there. And so, um, Dr. Zabriskie decided to send all of his choral methods undergrads to me for a practicum. And so they were with one of my seventh and eighth grade choirs, um, and I got to work with each of them one-on-one and do some coaching as well as uh, watching them teach and giving them feedback and things like that. Um, and I also had a couple student teachers during that time. And I realized that the further I got in to education, the more I wanted a challenge again. And so shifting from teaching choir to teaching people how to teach choir felt like that new piece of the puzzle that I wanted to figure out. Um, and so professionally, that was the decision there, there were a couple of other factors that had to do with my husband's work and things like that, that also made it apparent that it was a good time for us to make a change. Um, so, but for me, it's all, everything is always about challenge. 
And whenever I get to the point where I feel like I'm not getting quite the level of challenge that I need, um, that's when I try to move on to the next thing. And so I felt like for me in that moment, um, that challenge of how do I teach teachers was the next thing. And now at this point in my career, I'm starting to think, how do I teach people how to teach teachers? Um, so now working with graduate students, that's been a, a really fun extension of that challenge. I just feel like you are reading our questions and you don't even have them. This is insane. You are brilliant. Um, so this really segues uh, into our next uh, question for you, which is about um, your current position. So this is your second year at Florida State University, which is incredible. Um, and just for those out there that don't know, um, Dr. Adams, you know, earned this position directly out of her doctorate, which is amazing. Um, and it's pretty incredible to see um, her out in the field doing the thing that I, as someone in the doctoral program at UNT is like, wow, what a, what a role model um, and someone that I super admire and look up to. So just a shout out. Um, and as you're in this position, could you elaborate on what it's like to transition from being a doctoral student, moving into a position of professor, um, and what your experience has been like as a young female professional in the field, especially you just saw Dr. Napolis and you know, you're saying, I can be like that. And then how is it working with graduate students in your program and what have some of those experiences been? So this semester, which is my fourth semester here, is the first where I've really felt like I'm actually here and where it's really started to sink in that this is my life now. Like I finally moved into my office on campus a little bit. All that kind of stuff is just now starting to kind of line up a little bit. Um, I also feel like I was really fortunate at UNT that on the music ed side and in at UNT, you have a lot of opportunities to work as instructor of record. Um, at least you did when I was there. I think the class that most of us taught as instructor of record has maybe just a little, little anymore, different but formatting. When I was yeah. there, yeah. When I was there, there was a class that was a music for non-majors class that all the music ed people got to rotate through. So all that to say, I taught that course as instructor of record six times in my doctorate. And then I taught an elementary methods course two times. And then I was a TA for choral methods with Jessica Napolis. And then I was also a TA for her concert choir. And then I also got to be the serve as instructor of record for the treble chorus. So in a lot of ways at UNT, I already had experiences that helped me start to feel like a full-fledged university faculty, especially that last year that I was there. Once I'd finished my coursework, I'd finished my dissertation. And I, in that last year, I was teaching two music ed courses and directing the treble chorus, which is very similar to what my job is now. Um, so I was really fortunate that I got to kind of make that transition happen slowly while I still had the guidance of faculty who really cared about me and wanted to see me succeed. Um, and so those things I think all really, really helped me in that transition. And I'm so thankful for so many faculty at UNT who I still can call on and, and talk to about things and um, have that support from them. So the, what I anticipated as being the most challenging thing, what I was most concerned about coming to this job was working with grad students as someone who had just left 
being a grad student. But it what has what it has felt like is that the proximity I have to their experience actually helps me to connect with them. Um, it definitely is still I'm a professor and they're my students, but I so deeply understand what that experience is and what it's like to be in that really uncomfortable liminal space where you did have your own world and now you don't (laughs) and you don't get to make the decisions that you want to. And you're trying to do a lot of the work of a university professor while also doing the coursework. And I, I just understand that really deeply. And I also understand really deeply what I felt like I was strong in when I started teaching undergrads and the areas where I felt like I had to struggle and learn on my own. And so when I'm designing the courses that I do with my graduate students, I design it with all those things in mind, with uh, what's an appropriate course load, given the importance of this course, but also the time constraints that graduate students have. Um, What are the experiences I had at UNT that were really powerful and how can I replicate those? What were the things that I felt like were missing and how can I include those? And so um, I think in a lot of ways, being able to work with grad students right out of grad school has has been a really positive experience because of that closeness that I have to the to their experience, if that makes sense. Hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just saw a photo of you on Facebook the other day and was like, oh, like she looks like me. Like <laughs> this is so cool to see a young woman professor and that is the dream and how powerful to have someone who who was just doing that and who does understand, you know, the struggles and the difficult decision to go back to school, particularly when you're married and you have two people to equate into this situation. And how do you make the puzzle pieces fit together between, you know, your life as a student and your professional goals and your family? And, you know, it's just really, really powerful to see that. And so cool to hear you put that into words of like, that's an asset for me, you know, that's powerful and meaningful for my students. So I I love that. Yeah, I I thank you. It's, um, it is, uh, you know, there's always in the back of my mind, whenever I work with grad students, whether it's master's or doctoral level, um, how do I say this? We put a lot of emphasis, I think, in our field on the number of years that someone taught. And even though not everyone's path is the same. Um, and so I've talked to some other colleagues who have similar timelines to me, which, which is a really common timeline of teaching for five to seven years before getting your doctorate. And um, almost everyone that I talk to, they're they share this feeling of, well, when I'm, what if I'm working with a student who's been teaching for 15 years or 20 years, are they just going to be dismissive of me because I don't have that experience? You know, um, it's, am I, am I going to be embarrassed to say out loud how many years I taught? I had this experience last week. I think I was doing a, a stage clinician gig for an MPA and, um, in Florida there, you, there's a page that you provide to the judges where you can say 
a lot of information about the school where you teach. And one of the questions it asks is how many years have you taught and how many years have you taught at the school? And I remember opening up this packet and looking at this page and seeing like, this person has taught more years than I have been alive. What am I supposed to say (laughs) to this person? Are they going to be just completely dismissive of me because they're just going to look at me and be like, you're the same age as my granddaughter. Why should I listen to what you're saying? You know, and that wasn't the case at all. He was incredibly open and I did have some things to say. And um, so, but I think as a, particularly as a young faculty, that's something that is, tends to be in the back of our minds of, are these people going to respect me, even though for them, I, I might not have taught as many years as they have. I think also as a female faculty, well, I was thinking about this when we were talking earlier about the idea of if it's okay to leave a job. Um, I, I think a lot of times the argument that people will give and that I even heard from students who are wanting to leave a job is, oh, but the kids need me or... I have I have to give of myself to this program. And I think that we have to remember anytime we talk about education, that historically K-12 education is a woman's job, that it's it's a for years and years and years, you had to be a woman, you had to be an unmarried woman. <laughs> and um, you know, and that that part of the conversation is so important as a side note, like whenever we talk about things like teacher pay, why is teacher pay low? Because it's historically a female field. And so pay began low because they said, you're a single woman with no children. So here you can stay in this cabin and we'll give you, you know, the equivalent of like $5 a week, whatever that was at that time. And so even though pay has increased over time, it started out super low because it's a historically female profession. Um, So there is a lot of in K-12 education of you have to sacrifice yourself and you have to serve everyone else and make them happy. And those are all things that are because it's primarily, primarily female profession. When you think about higher ed, higher ed teaching is historically male. And so now when you're in this space of music ed within higher ed, I feel like in a lot of ways, the expectation of being, self-sacrificial and appeasing everyone and um, taking care of other people's problems and, and being maternal is amplified because for most people in higher ed, that's not an expectation because it's not a historically female field. And so now if you have someone who's a young female faculty and they're in education, then there's this increased expectation that you should be very maternal and whatever attributes we want to associate with that. Um, And so that's something that has been a a struggle for me occasionally because I'm not, I'm not maternal. I'm just, that's just not who I am. It is a great thing that I don't have children. I, I can barely handle having a dog. Like I'm not, that's not who I am. Um, The dog stories on the social media, you are missing out on some Rudy content that is phenomenal. So that's just like a complete tangent. Continue. Sorry. That's true. In fact, Rudy is snoring behind me right now as we're having this podcast. Where did he go? Oh, he's all the way over there. Oh, he's amazing. <laughs> so cute. Um, so, you know, I think there's, it's, it's just, um, and then also being young, when you pair that with being female, I like, I remember my first year of teaching middle school, um, we had some 
paperwork we were supposed to collect from students and turn into the nurse. And I got my papers together and trotted down the hallway and I handed them to the nurse and she handed them back to me and said, you're supposed to give those to your homeroom teacher. And I said, I am the homeroom teacher (laughs) and handed them back. Um, And I finally had kind of gotten past that. But now at the collegiate level, you know, people assume that I'm an undergrad. Um, You know, I, a lot of times I'll get emails that are just addressed to Carrie and um, which, you know, what, it's not a huge, huge deal to me. I, I know that I'm not a medical doctor, but I did get a PhD and I worked really hard for it. Um, and the funniest thing to me is that sometimes I'll get emails that are to me and to my male colleagues and they'll be addressed to Dr. Hannah Walt and Carrie. Um, like that kind of stuff happens quite, quite frequently. So, um, you know, I think, I think some of that is just the assumptions that people make because, I, you know, is it because I'm female or is it because I'm young or is it some combination of those? Um, you know, it's really impossible to tell, but, uh, but that kind of stuff does happen pretty frequently. Well, that's um, a great segue so, um, because you talked a little bit about some, um, whether it's a microaggression or just, you know, discrimination or um, adversity that you're facing, whether that be because you're female or because you are young, or like you said, the combination um, what suggestions do you have for people in this field to overcome some of that adversity um, and any advice that you could pass along to people go- headed in your direction or, you know, still teaching K through 12 who are maybe facing things like this every day? So I think the one thing that's really important is to remember that the things that people say and do to you are not about you. They're about them. And so we have the choice to decide what we're going to think about those things. So when I get those emails, I could think, oh, how terrible this person doesn't respect me and they're not addressing me the way that they should. And, or I can just kind of laugh it off and be like, how sad for them that they are, have these assumptions that keep them trapped. Um, And so I think just remembering that the things that we think and how we frame those things uh, can really have a lot of influence over the way that we feel about things. But with that, also deciding what your boundaries are and then sticking to them. So I think about people who are teaching, like women who are teaching in the K-12 setting, there are going to be expectations that various people have that you should be available all the time and that you should put the needs of the children above your own and that you should be okay with your low pay because of all these extra rewards that you get by being a teacher. And I think it's important to recognize why those beliefs exist and to decide what our boundaries are that we're, we are paid for these contract hours. And when the contract hours are over, we're not going to do any more work. And the, the narrative that we get from society of, but you have to put the extra work in because you've got to serve the kids. Well, no, that's your boundary. And if they want you to put in more hours, then they can pay you for more hours, but they're not. And so I think, I think recognizing those boundaries and that you are a worthy human who deserve to have those boundaries respected by you and by other people. Um, you know, I think that's, that's really important. So I think those two things paired of deciding what your boundaries are and honoring them and not letting this 
guilt of um, that people try to hang over society tries to hang over our head of the ser- serving the children um, get in the way of those boundaries and also doing that thought work to recognize like this is not an objective circumstance this is what am I thinking about it and how can the way I think about it change the way that I interact with it I think those two things are both really helpful regardless of what it, what level you're teaching or what you're doing in your career mm-hmm. yeah we've I mean everything that you just said like a I've experienced and I know McKenna has too. And B, we've watched, you know, secondhand through our own mom, who was a and still is a music teacher in the K through 12 system. And this idea of sacrificing yourself, of always being available, was very much on display for us our entire childhood. And she is a fantastic teacher and absolutely was influential in our decision to to pursue this field. But also as an adult now, I'm, I'm making those decisions of like, I can not check my email after 5 p.m. because I need to see my husband <laughs> and I don't get paid enough to check my email. Now, he is an attorney. The expectation is that he will check his email at midnight and be responsive, but we are compensated very differently. So that's a decision that I can make and feel powerful about and say, no, thank you. I, I will wait and get to that tomorrow morning. Um, but there is this concept of like needing to sacrifice all of the things that make you a human outside of your job in order to fulfill those duties. And even looking at our mom now, like she just re- decided to retire and that will be have been announced by the time this comes out. But she said to me two months ago, but the kids need me. And I was like, mom, you are a human. You need you. You get to decide who you are outside of your job and you're great at your job, but that's not all that you are. And that's something that, that I think everyone struggles with a little bit in our field because we are so emotionally connected to it. So thank you for, for pointing that out and offering that wisdom to whoever may need to hear it in this moment. (laughs) You you touched a little bit on um, like our, our response to situations. And so you, you getting those emails addressed to Dr. Blah, 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 and Carrie And so I have felt over the past two years, specifically coming from my public ed experience, going into um, my doctorate, the longer I'm here, the more confident I am to say, thank you so much. And also please address me as Mrs. Stenson, because I am your teacher. Um, And it's not that used to have a big emotional toll on me. It used to feel really taxing uh, to correct someone. Um, And I think my my skin is thicker because of many of these experiences, which is not something I wish upon anybody, but I am working to practice what I preach, which is it's okay to guide students. It's important to help students understand. And part of that understanding is that they they that you're being addressed in the right way. That if a student emails you and says moving them from one voice part to another is a big fat mistake that you know there's the right people cc'd on that response so that that student understands that's not how you communicate with your teaching fellow it's just not and so it's important i think to to help our students learn how to communicate and what is appropriate so that we can hopefully reduce microaggressions and reduce uh reduce this just in general in the world so your advice is well taken <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Switching gears slightly because we want to hear 
just about your approach to programming. We touched on this a little bit and you said that this is something you're incredibly passionate about and your, I think you said creative outlet at this point, or at least you're like most important creative outlet. Um, so would you talk a little bit about programming and what you think about when selecting repertoire and um, specifically for treble ensembles? Cause I know that that's something that um, is really important to you. So any wisdom you have to say about programming? So, as I mentioned earlier, everything that I do comes from Christina McMullen. I can't claim anything at all. This is all her influence. Um, and I remember when she came to interview at UNT and she presented about programming and just being so struck by this idea that we can program in such a way that we give, um, that we tell a story and that we tap into the social consciousness and that we make a difference in the world around us. And I remember feeling after that presentation, like I cannot be content anymore, just selecting pieces that I like and putting them together. Like I have to tell a story. This is what it is to be human is to tell stories. That's how we create our identity. It's how we pass down our history. Storytelling is what it is to be human. And so I need that to be central to what I do in my programming. And so um, I've really focused on that the last few years with how can I tell a story? How can I tell a story that's impactful to my singers, to my audience? How can I tell a story that feels necessary right now at this point in time? So my first year that I was here, um, I, we were part of the consortium for the suffrage cantata. Um, and it was the 100th anniversary of the passing of the amendment. And so I wanted that whole year to be about suffrage. So in the fall, we talked about the suffrage movement itself. And the program was about um, protest and protest movements. And then we did the suffrage cantata in the spring. And so that felt like a story for me for the year. Um, and then this year, I've divided it up. So in the fall semester... I used a theory from sociology on, on socialization, and I focused specifically on the socialization of women. Um, and we talked about what societal expectations are of women and how that influences your identity development as you're growing up. Even for people who are non-binary or who are trans men, people who are assigned female at birth who present as female at any point through that adolescent years, they're treated in different ways than people who present as male. And so how does that affect the way that your identity develops over time? Um, and then this, this year, I felt this semester, I felt like as we start to hopefully exit the pandemic, um, I thought about how um, from the very beginning days of the pandemic, there was this sense that we weren't allowed to mourn the things that we had lost, that we were expected to just pick ourselves up and move on and get back to normal as quickly as possible. And so this semester, uh, the program is framed around the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. And we're talking about how vital grief and mourning are to the human experience, that it's through grief that we're able to experience joy, and it's through death that we are able to enjoy life. Um, that's not what you asked, but I got excited and I started talking about acting. That programs. is, that's, that's it. So, no, that's, and and <laughs> the passion and excitement with which you speak about programming is, I think, the goal for all educators, regardless of level, regardless of if the music has to come from UIL list or if it has to come from your state assessment list or, yeah. you know, that type of um, 
spark is what I think we're all craving. Yeah. I, so, I mean, I think now that, um, now that I spend a lot of my life programming, I try to plan really far in advance. That's one thing that's been helpful for me when you're, when you're thinking about programming around a theme or telling a story, um, like you can't go on JW Pepper and say, I need a story about, um, the socialization of women and adolescents. Like that's not a search filter <laughs> that's available. And so being able to think in advance and I keep, just big, a a piece of paper for each program, just a blank piece of paper. And as I'm listening to music or I'm looking through perusal scores or whatever, I think, oh, hey, that might fit with this theme. And I'm able to kind of track ahead of time. So like right now I have my next four semesters of programs outlined on, like, I know what the topic is going to be and I have them up on my wall. Um, And so as I find things, I can just go through and kind of start to put stuff together. Um, So that's been really helpful as far as the actual process And then when I'm selecting rep, I'm thinking, I want to be sure that we're going to be successful, but I also want there to be an element of challenge. And so the last couple of semesters, especially I've programmed some pieces that multiple people have said to me, this is way too hard for this ensemble. They're not going to be able to do it. And they always end up being their absolute favorite piece. Like right now we're doing the Thomas out damned spot. And I, I mean, I think people thought I was bonkers when I asked to order that piece and they just are so in love with it. And they are, it's the, they sound better on that than anything else that we're doing. Like they sound really good on everything, but that is their absolute favorite piece. So I think that element of challenge is really important. You know, that's core to me and who I am, but I think that's really important in our, our and in general advanced trouble chorus, it's more, it's difficult sometimes to find music that's not about being in love. Yes. Yes. Like it's difficult to find (laughs) when we, I want to find music about being angry or rage for advanced trouble. Like there's just really hard. (laughs) And then I think sometimes once you find it, it's all in the same aesthetic. And so then that also causes conflict because you're like, wow, I can't do the same aesthetic four semesters in a row, there needs to be more diversification of advanced trouble repertoire. We should mm-hmm. say it again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and I think there's also kind of a, a stigma that trouble groups are not as good as mixed groups. And so I think a lot of uh, really accomplished composers will focus their efforts on mixed choir. And so when there is trouble music, it's maybe a piece that was written for mixed choir and then has been arranged for a trouble chorus. Um, and so that, that can be challenging too, because then it's, you know, it's not written for a trouble course. So the ranges and the testatura might not really fit exactly what you need for your choir. Um, so, I mean, those things are for sure challenges of, uh, of programming for trouble groups, but I feel like any group, but especially trouble groups, they want to be able to well, any choir, they want, they want to do some, they want to make music, they want to sing, but they also want to make a difference. They want to say something about what's happening in the world. Um, and so when we, as much as possible, can think about that in our programming to make it really meaningful for them, I think that's always a, a good, uh, good thing to do with your choirs. Mm, that's so well said. Yeah, I, I think Again, that balance of challenge and and immediate success is something that we're all looking for. And I don't know, my my advanced trouble ensemble at my high school was 
my absolute favorite to conduct. And it, it was very challenging to find repertoire for them that was not a spiritual that was arranged for trouble voices. And even I was thinking as you were speaking, like our, my favorite piece to conduct them in was the Alberto Grau Casarmier Lagahi, which is really complex and exciting. And they loved it. It was super challenging. But again, it was a piece that was arranged for trouble voices and not written with them in mind. So yeah, absolutely. Things to think about. And that's a really hard thing when you think about, um, like, I know there are a lot of people who feel very strongly that we should make sure that our choirs are singing things that are from the Western canon. Um, but that's there, that stuff wasn't written for trouble choruses. There are, you know, there, there are examples of some things. There's some great Brahms pieces. There are some, um, some Holst and some Von Williams. Like there's some things there. I'm not saying it doesn't exist at all. Some Vivaldi, like, but the vast majority of stuff was written for mixed choirs. And so again, like you said, that there, there's arrangements, but, um, but it wasn't written for them. And I, I just wonder sometimes about how necessary it is for us to make our treble choirs um, seeing pieces that are from a time period where they were largely ignored. Um, yes. So I, <laughs> I'm like, we just need a t-shirt. Like we just like, we've been, as we interview people, we have all these great phrases that we just need to put on t-shirts and mugs and there we go. That's one. So I, that's my, uh, mo- most, a lot of people might say that's a weakness of mine when it comes to programming, but I, I don't tend to include a lot of things from the traditional Western canon. I feel like they're going to get exposed to those things when they sing in mixed choirs, um, and I would really rather them spend their time with me singing things that were written with their voices in mind. Hmm. Well, we just, I mean, such a wealth of knowledge, Dr. Adams, and I feel like we need a whole nother podcast to talk about your research, um, and all the amazing things that you're contributing to the field of music education. Um, but for today we are going to dive into our fast five. These are a couple questions, um, where it's just off the top of your head answers, uh, to share with our listeners. And so the first one is what is your current, uh, a current octavo or a current composer recommendation who you're just really into that you'd like to share. So I have to say, I listen to metaphysical milkshake and they do like this yes. rapid fire round at the end. And I've always wanted to do it. And now that I'm having to do it, my brain hurts. <laughs> They're going to be great. No wrong answers. Whatever comes um, to mind. I'm so bad at this. Oh no. It's okay. We had to do this on another podcast and well as well. And I literally was like, I have no brain. Well, <laughs> I, so I just finished, I just finished programming a junior high honor choir. And then the last two days I've just been neck deep in tenor bass rep for an all state that I'm doing. And so I'm having, like, I'm having, so I'm having trouble making my brain think of things. Um, so, but I, well, I'm going to say out damn spot, the, uh, the Thomas piece that we're doing right now is just amazing. And I, can I say too, um, the other one is in her image by Katerina Gemmon. Um, we did that last semester and it was everyone's absolute favorite piece. It was stunning. It was challenging, but it was so worth every minute that we spent on that piece. Um, and I mean, everything that she's written is phenomenal. This is probably my favorite piece that, uh, has come from her. So that for sure would be one that I would recommend to people who have advanced trouble groups. Beautiful. Great answer. Um, 
Question number two. <laughs> what is one misconception about you? These are not fast. These are hard. <laughs> this is good feedback for us. This is very specific feedback. Thank you, Dr. Adams. <laughs> one misconception about me. One misconception about me from people who are friends with me on Facebook is that I am a dog person. I am not. I am a cat person. I've only ever had cats. Rudy is my first dog. And I remain steadfastly a cat person, <laughs> but I make an exception for Rudy. So that would be one misconception. We love cat people. We love dog people too. I, <laughs> I have loved. I have loved seeing your cat make appearances. Thank you. I have two, and one will not sit in my lap. <laughs> yeah, it's best if Bagel doesn't sit in your lap. Um, and then there are people who shouldn't have anything living in their home, which is me. I mean. <laughs> We have plants and those are Brian's. They're not mine. Um, okay. Number three, what is one word to describe you on the podium? Well, okay. So if I, if I were a man, <laughs> I would very easily be able to provide you a positive word to describe me on the podium. But as a, someone who is socialized as a woman, I feel really weird saying anything good about myself on the podium. And so I would say, um, I think that I have a graceful gesture. So I'm going to make myself say something positive. So I'll say graceful. You're, you're, I mean, as someone who's seen you conduct multiple times, one, absolutely graceful, two, fierce. Like the way that you connect with your students with your whole being is just inspirational. So if you need more positive feedback, you let me know and I'm gonna just bring it right your way. <laughs> You're always here. <laughs> Happy to provide the positive feedback and good practice to make ourselves say positive things out loud because that is a true statement that you just said. Um, all right. Number four, favorite choral memory. I'm sure you have many, but just it can be one of your more recent ones with one of your choirs or something very specific from maybe college, whatever comes to mind. I think at this point, it would be um, it would actually be this week, the Wednesday before spring break. Um, I, we're working on the storm right now by Evie Layden, which McKenna, I know is working on too. Yes, we are. And we just got to the point Wednesday where we could sing through the whole thing with the body percussion. And, um, it was just such a really powerful experience to see the, uh, the relief <laughs> and pride mixed together on their faces whenever they did that. Um, and it was also, uh, powerful for me because, the last group I worked with that piece on also had just gotten to the point where they could do the whole thing with body percussion when we shut down for COVID and we never got to perform it. And so being able to see that with a group that hopefully I'm going to actually be able to then perform it with, um, that was really powerful. And that's something that's going to stick with me. That's beautiful. Um, and you go girl, that is some hard body percussion. And I feel you in, in that, um, the anticipation of it all coming together. <laughs> and finally, um, do you have a choral blooper that you could share with the community? Something that, um, I mean, you'll have to go back and listen to Kira's. Her blooper is my favorite. Um, so once the podcast comes out, our very first episode, just skip ahead to the very end. But of a choral blooper. 
It borders on inappropriate mine. So just know it's an open space. <laughs> a coral blooper. Um, I mean, I have immediately an orchestra one that comes to my mind. I was before uh, one of our concerts in high school, I was sitting on the stage at my stand, you know, noodling around and warming up. And um, I was in a, I was working through a really difficult passage that had a lot of really fast bow changes. And I had been working with my teacher on cole bowing and keeping my wrist nice and loose. And I had my wrist so loose that whenever I went on an up bow, I lost my grip on my bow and it flew out of my hand and went like four stands back and landed between two other people on the stage. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I can't oh. think of a coral one though. That's just delightful. I that think will that, I think will suffice. Yes. <laughs> Well, we have just been so grateful um, to spend some time with you this morning and to hear your insights and your wisdoms. Um, and I think there's so much that our community is gonna, going to learn um, and cherish from this time that we've spent together. So I know I'm grateful and Kira is very grateful. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Adams, for joining us. Thank you both so much for having me. It was so much fun to get to see you both and talk with you for a little bit. Absolutely. Last, last thing. If you haven't seen our social media, please check us out. We are at conduct.her.pod on Instagram and conduct.her on Facebook. Thank you all so much. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Conductor. Conductor.